What's up, guys? Really grateful you guys are listening to the pod. I would love it if you could take just five seconds to leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might be listening to this. It really goes a long way to spread the message, which would allow me to get better guests to add more value to your life. And if you're one of the special people that have helped spread the word on this podcast, I am deeply appreciative of your support. Enjoy the episode. Hola amigos, do you ever wish you could speak Spanish with confidence but constantly feel intimidated or nervous when you speak it? Then let me introduce you to JumpSpeak. JumpSpeak is an AI-powered language app that we developed using an active immersion method to help you speak Spanish like a native speaker faster. Here's how it works. You choose from over a thousand conversation lessons where you'll role play fun, real-life scenarios from going on a first date to asking for directions when you're traveling. You'll start speaking on day one with our AI chatbots and get real-time speech feedback while mastering your listening skills. Best of all, you can make all the mistakes you want without ever feeling judged or embarrassed. So say adios to awkward silences or boring traditional methods. You'll be traveling freely to your next Spanish-speaking destination in no time. Go to jumpspeak.com slash growth today and you can try it risk-free for a hundred days the difference between successful people and unsuccessful people is that successful people are prepared to do what unsuccessful people are not and that is often to choose a given attitude uh, or give, given way of being so muhammad ali you know who had an amazing mindset for performance incredible attitude towards winning and driving great outcomes you know, never had a psychologist when you work with high performers it's just a matter of asking the right questions as much as it is trying to give people the right answers the best coaches do tell people you know not what to see you know but where to look you know and i think that developing self-awareness is incredibly important so the most successful people i've ever worked with i've had the pleasure of working with six sports people you know who got to number one in the world and the most interesting thing is their levels of self-awareness and the reasons why they did so well is because they played to their strengths and they understood their key assets understand what's good about me and turn the volume up on it Jamil, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming. So I wanted to start off with a interesting fact that I've heard on your website where you've had exclusive access to study NASA astronauts. I'd love to know what you've learned through the mental training that they've done before they've went off to space. Okay, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I actually worked um, with astronauts on the um, 2008, in 2008, and it was actually to do with recovery. So um, uh, high-intensity workloads require um, good recovery. Um, there's an interesting thing. Whenever I speak to business people and you say to business people, how do you get more done? They say um, more time in the day. That's what I would like. Or an extra pair of hands, that's what they say. When you speak to high performers, uh, people like astronauts or premiership football uh, players or uh, you know these medical teams who do these eight-hour operations or fighter pilots, they always say more time off. So the complete opposite, in fact. Um, and the reason why is that they realize the power of recovery. So high-intensity um, workloads 
um, these periods of um, of um, mental concentration or uh, or focus um, require us then to have some downtime. So the work that I was doing there, Sean, was based upon uh, understanding recovery and methods and techniques in which people can recover um, quicker and better. Mm. Meaning, okay, so initially I, when, when you said recovery, I thought it was from when they came back to oh, Earth no. from space. Yeah. But you're talking about during the training process, yes. you specifically work with them on, you know, just the recovery after all of the workload they've done to train. Yes, absolutely. So um, at any given time, in fact, so sometimes when you're doing something which requires intense focus for half an hour, 50 minutes, whatever it might be, um, it's then a matter of trying to take some time out and to have that time out and to clear your mind, have some clarity, have a bit of time and space and uh, move away from the narrowness that, uh, of the um, of the task that you were trying to complete um, uh, can be really useful. So um, it's said for every um, 50 minutes that you spend at a computer screen, you can lose up to 20% concentration. When you think about how long we spend at uh, computer screens these days, um, I think that first year of COVID, I heard a, a, a statistic that here in the UK, uh, we'd saved 80 million hours of commute time. Um, but I guarantee you everyone sent, spent it in front of a computer. Uh, everyone was sat there working instead of being on the tube or, uh, or on a, in a car. So, um, so I don't think we necessarily realize um, in the business world how important recovery is, how important it is to switch off, take time out, um, and not just at the end of the day, but actually during the day, create those breaks. Hmm. So when you talked about working with them around the recovery, was it the psychology of allowing them to realize that recovery is okay because of the fact that most high performance or type A players can't ever shut off and you were working with them to really explain the benefits of recovery or were there specific tactics and techniques and strategies that you were doing? Yeah. Tactics and techniques really, Sean. And, um, so uh, what works, what doesn't work. Uh, so our ability to clear our mind, uh, refocus, um, find an ability to re-energize um, uh, through um, through moving away from the um, from the concentration on a particular task or outcome, um, and so really it's techniques and tools. Um, and what was interesting for me is that uh, it wasn't necessarily that I was giving people techniques and tools. I always say that the, the answers lie within. Um, a lot of people who perform at a high level do these things quite naturally. So Muhammad Ali, you know, who had an amazing mindset for performance, incredible attitude towards um, winning and driving great outcomes, you know, never had a psychologist. And, um, and it was a natural way of thinking. And no doubt he had, um, through experience, found out things that had worked for him. So it's really a matter of when you work with high performers, it's just a matter of asking the right questions as much as it is trying to give people the right answers. Um, and there isn't a one size fits all. It's not, you know, here's what you should do and this will work for you. Um, it's more about trying to get people to unravel um, what it is they already do, which allows them to work very well. And then you might be able to help wrap that up in a technique or you might be able to position it in a way which allows them to utilize it more. Yeah, that's 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 super interesting. It kind of reminds me of uh, of, of the saying: "Hard questions, easy life; easy questions, hard life." And it's something that, obviously, like as a podcaster, is something that I practice. But what are some of those questions that really helped unlock 
some of the potential in these astronauts or high performance that you've worked with uh, that's, you know, kind of resonates with, with them when you work with them? Yeah, I think questions about um, not necessarily about outcomes, but, um, but about um, characteristics uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and think pre pre thinking thinking before a task are really useful. So I think that we and here's a sequence of events for you. I think that we think and then we feel and then we act. Um, so all our actions come from how we feel, and that often comes from you know the, the words and pictures in our heads. So we think in words, we think in pictures, makes us feel a particular way, you know, and then we act upon it. Um, so you know, I think to change people's doing, you need to change their thinking. But, um, to get people to act differently, you need to get them to think differently. So um, the way in which you explore these things is by asking questions based upon. Um, not necessarily outcomes that people drove. What did you achieve? And, um, but it's more how did you get there? Um, you know, what was the thinking? And, uh, what you know, were the component parts and, uh, of um, your mindset, your attitude towards things? Um, and I think it's increasingly important in the business world um, to understand some of our the characteristics of a team or an individual um, because we can't judge, judge our success just on outcomes anymore. Um, and, you know, what I mean by that is that, um, you know, at the moment, because the world is so disrupted, because it's complex, uncertain, unpredictable, improbable, um, you can make really good decisions and have a bad outcome, you know, or you can make bad decisions and have a good outcome. And this is why I work with leadership teams who have confused luck for genius, terrible decision, mm -hmm. but it's worked out great. So it's really hard to, you know, have a look at, you know, what we're achieving in regard to these you know, outcomes and outputs. It's more about the intrinsic quality of our decision-making process. More about those building blocks. What enabled you? And, um, so, you know, what were you feeling, you know, at that point? And, um, you know, what was the trigger that enabled you to um, think in that particular way? Um, and once you start to get people to deconstruct and uh, start to go back a step, and start to understand it from um, a feeling perspective, a, um, a perspective not necessarily based upon anything task-related, but more about an approach to it, a particular characteristic or personality you know, that they brought to the task. Um, yeah. Maybe they'll get a better understanding of themselves. Yeah, people often make the distinguisher, the transfer of sports and apply that to business. And I'm sure there's a lot of things that you can transfer. And obviously, you now work in both, where you've been a sports psychologist for some of the top athletes, NASA astronauts, and now you're working in some of the top corporations. I'd love to know what the difference is, because when it comes to sports, there is kind of a zero-sum game in, in a lot of cases, right? You either become first place or you're not. You're either going to win the NBA playoffs um, or you're not or you're gonna win the Premier League championships or you're not. Yes. When it comes to business, a lot of winning in business is to stay in business. It's a bit of a different end result in terms of how you look at winning. How do you distinguish that when you're coming into working with clients around, around that? Yeah, so it's a very good question. Uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the reason why, and let's look at something like, um, I don't know, uh, an English premiership football team. So if you've got an English premiership football team, and they're very, very good soccer players. That's what they are. They're very good. Um, but there's 11 people on a 
premiership football team uh, and eight of them won't speak the same language um they won't be able to, they won't be able to really converse with each other and uh, come from different countries speak different languages um they all 11 players will have i don't know different religions different cultural backgrounds different educational backgrounds um different um uh, play in different positions, different stages in their career, and yet they play brilliantly together for 90 minutes, unless they're Everton, but that's another story. Um, they play brilliantly together for 90 minutes. And the reason why they play brilliantly to get together for 90 minutes, even though they have so many differences, not even really being able to communicate in the same language, is because they all know what winning looks like. Um, you're absolutely right. And um, they've got three things. And, um, there's a real simplicity on how you win a game of football. Everyone knows how to win in soccer. At, um, you score one more goal. At, uh, so everyone knows what winning looks like. Uh, everyone knows their position. I know what's expected of me. I know my role. And I know the interdependency. So I know what I need to do in the context of others uh, to make sure that we achieve this, um, uh, this end point. So the clarity and simplicity at, um, is what enables these people to play together for so well. Plays play well for, uh, together. At, um, but you are absolutely right. You know, in business, there's a real complexity. Um, we're winning in this area. Yeah, I know, but we're losing in that area. Yeah, I know, but that's because it's seasonal. I know that's because mm. that's an emerging market. And we end up plate spinning. We don't know whether we're winning or losing, you know, or what, you know, what we're doing. At, um, so, you know, so people start to follow their own agenda. You know, and that's when you get people operating in silos with their own line of sight objectives. Um, mm -hmm. I know what winning looks like in my area, but it's a bit confusing elsewhere. So I commit to protectionism and neutrality. So I think that, you know, I, I agree that there's a difference there and there, there lies the problem. You know, I think for organizations now, things have changed. Okay? And I think organizations need to become more purposeful. Um, so it's not necessarily about targets and objectives. It's more about purpose. Um, and purpose maximization will always drive profit maximization. There are really good examples of it at the moment. Uh, yeah, so I think that passion is a significant multiplier of human performance. Um, there are so many companies with mission statements, but so very few on a mission. You know, truly galvanizing their people behind a worthy cause um, and I think, Sean, I think that literally in the last few years in particular, I think that companies have gone wrong. I think that brands have gone wrong, leaders have gone wrong because they focus upon what they can have rather than what they can be. You know, this, mm -hmm. instead of seeing customers as atomized consumers to be sold to, um, it should be more like essential partners to be engaged with. You know, moving together as a network and partnership to um, create something worthwhile and meaningful in a world which is more demanding of it. You know, and, and you know, you all know, in terms from you know, speaking to your other guests, that you know, the world has changed significantly in relation to what people expect of brands, leaders and organizations. You know, so um, you know, we've all had 18 months to sit at home alone with our soul and you know, during COVID and think about who do we want to work for? Where do we want to work? Um, how do I want to express my talent? Um, and I think that more so than targets and objectives and goals, I think organizations need to realize they need to be more purposeful. You know, and that's a different positioning on your question. But, um, but yeah. I think the most, best organizations will fulfill a need, have a genuine reason for being. Um, and I think let's bring this back to your question on sport and on business. 
one thing that sports people do really well is that they're incredibly purposeful, amazingly purposeful. Um, it's not necessarily about targets and objectives. You know, it's about a reason for being, a reason to get out of bed in the morning. You know, and I think um, this is why Tiger Woods keeps working. You know, it's why Warren Buffett keeps working. You know, it's because purpose is never achieved. It's attained on a daily basis. And I think mm -hmm. they really they realize that. So there's, I guess, like the, the um, similarity should be that organizations and sports teams become purposeful in the way in which they choose to express their talent and capability. Yeah, taking this back to the answer, individual I'm sorry, level. I'm answer that, Sean. I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a hard answer. It's a hard question to answer, I think, but uh, I think you did it well. I mean, I would like to go back to the individual level, whether it's athletes or whether it's uh, business people that you work with. Similar to what you're talking about with purpose, a lot of that is an inner driven thing that you have to unlock. And would it be fair to say that a lot of what you've done with as a sports psychologist isn't necessarily giving athletes more skills or talents in their particular fields, but it's, it's often it's unlocking these capabilities that one already has, but they just don't know what questions to ask or what framework to use, and you're really just unlocking what they already have within them. Is yes. that a fair way to put that? Yes, I think it's a really good way of putting it, actually. So coaching is not training. You know, I always say training is something you do to animals. You know, coaching is different. You know, coaching is about um, uh, unlocking a door to discovery. Um, I sometimes feel it training. You know, you rob people of the experience of discovery. You know, and um, and the best coaches do tell people, you know, not what to see, you know, but where to look, you know. And I think that uh, developing self awareness is incredibly important. So the most successful people I've ever worked with, I've had the pleasure of working with six sports people, you know, who got to number one in the world. And the most um, interesting thing is their levels of self awareness. Um, and the reason why they did so well is because they played to their strengths. Um, they understood their key assets, understand what's good about me, and turn the volume up on it. That's what they talk about. But, um, let me understand what I do great and be a bit more consistent with it. And that's how they talk about success. You know, no one ever really sort of talks about making a sea change. I'm going to do something dramatic. From tomorrow, I'm going to be different. Um, I never hear that and, um, from really successful people. And um, I hear, you know, I need to know myself better so that, you know, I can use my key assets, at, um, you know, and, and I can build upon my strengths, you know, to make them even better, you know, more powerful. Um, so, um, so I agree. I think that, you know, really good coaches, you know, enable better levels of self-awareness. Um, they don't give people new skill sets. They make them aware of the skill sets they've already got. You know, and again, you know, in business, you know, I sometimes think that, you know, we're too quick to train the people rather than fix the environment. You know, and training the people is all about, let me give you some new skills or up your skills. Fixing the environment means creating a coaching culture where people walk out of meetings and their colleague says to them, before you go to your next meeting, can I just say that you did these three things really well in there? And I really admire about that about you. And in these difficult meetings with these sort of customers, this is where you shine. And I'll tell you why. And so I think that if we can increase the coaching culture, you know, in organizations, um, then I think that um, people will have a better level of self-awareness, you know, and that's really, as you've summed it up, but, um, you know, is where 
coaches can strike gold when people start to realize what it is they already do well and can turn the volume up on it at, um, or transfer it from one area to another area you know or yeah. you know amplify it in some way to go a level deeper than that i would imagine for these people to be able to even be coached they need to be more open minded right they, they i would imagine they need the growth mindset as kind of what Carol Dweck calls in, in her book. Um, I guess in psychology, the, they have the differentiation of like the internal locus of control or the external locus of control. And uh, I would imagine like the people with the growth mindset are those with the internal locus of control, which, which I guess it summarizes that they have the abilities within them to make the changes in their lives or the business or their outcomes. It's not the in external, they're not blaming the external environments around them. Do you ever work with athletes or clients that may have that initial instinct to blame the things around them, which is very common in, in today's society. I think we all do it in some form and allow them to realize and have more internal liquid control and more of a growth mindset how have you transitioned those people into thinking in this way? Because that seems like a really key fact before even working with coaches. Yes. So I always say that blame looks backwards and responsibility looks forwards. Um, and that's mm -hmm. a universal law in high performance. You know, blame looks backwards, responsibility looks forwards. Um, genuine ownership is key. Um, and talent is not enough. I've seen it so many times in sports people and in business people, actually. You know, talent is not enough. You need talent and teachability. So it's the ability to take your talent and make it better by wanting, having a desire to, you know, to learn and then putting in the investment to do so. So um, it's an interesting question you ask, and, you know, I'll answer it in two ways. Um, you know, I've sometimes, I've probably worked with or turned down more people than I've worked with. And the reason why is because sometimes they sit in front of you with their arms folded and say, come on, they make me better. Mm. You know, and you talk about the closed mindset. And, um, come on, then, how can you improve me? Um, and you know, I've chosen not to work with a lot of people because it doesn't feel like it's a partnership, exactly as you just described. And so you need an open-mindedness, you know, the ability to question, challenge, unlearn. You know, be willing to question your belief system, what you believe to be true. You know, to step into new perspectives, which will create new opportunities and possibilities for you. So, and some people don't necessarily seem to you know, be open-minded enough at, um, for me to work with. And um, so I've turned those down. And sometimes when you get it wrong, what's interesting is that, you know, it's exactly what you expect it to be. So you give someone some techniques or some thinking, you know, they go away, come back after a week and say, do you know what? I, I tried that and it didn't work. Have you got anything else? And it's a bit yeah. like going to the gym, working out, you know, then you go home after half an hour, look in the mirror and say, it's rubbish, that gym it doesn't work. You know, so, <laughs> so I think that, you know, that's with all of these things, the open mindedness leads to better exploration and experimentation with the ideas. Mm. Because again, not one size fits all. You know, I couldn't give you a technique and say, go go away and use that, Sean, and you'll you'll improve your golf game, or your podcasting skills. You know, it doesn't work like that. And um, if I if I gave you some things to think about, and you interpreted and translated it because you're open minded, and curious, and wanting you know to do better, you might be able to um, take that technique 
and interpret or translate it into something which is meaningful for you. So, um, so it's not it's not a finished item you get. It's something to work with, you know. And that takes time. It does take open mindedness. You know, it does take the ability to question which areas we are in control of, you know, which areas we can genuinely affect for the better, you know, and which areas that you know we have a level of responsibility for. So, um, I do find that. Yeah, you know, the best people to work with, you know, are hugely open-minded, and and I do find that, you know, particularly these days, that high technical expertise, knowing a lot, isn't as useful as it used to be. Certainly not as valuable as it used to be, because we can Google things. That's why. So in a way, as a leader, you know, even as a sports person, it's not what you know; it's how you think about what you know. So mm. you. Share it, argue it, debate it with yourself or with other people. You know, to take that knowledge and make it more meaningful and valuable in a world which has now changed. Yeah, yeah, it's that foundation that you need, which is a hard one for someone if they've lived their whole lives. I mean, the great example that you gave up with was someone just having their hands up, not ready to listen. And in their mind, it's kind of the example of like, if you just close your eyes and you'll yell red, 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 and you look around the room, the chances of you seeing red is way more yeah. common. Or someone that's about to be hypnotized and tells themselves, no, I'm not going to be hypnotized. I'm not, this is bullshit. This, this is not something that I believe in. It's probably less likely to be hypnotized than someone that's open-minded. And, you know, I, I think about, I don't know for you, but for me personally, like I sometimes will find myself having an open mind with, let's say, business or learning new skills. But then when it comes to like, I don't know, relationships or um, certain other things, I'm also like very close-minded. So we can be open-minded in certain fields, but all of a sudden in a different field, we're like the complete opposite, you know? We're just completely close-minded. And, you know, I, I guess going back to that question is like, have you found anything that works when someone is this close-minded to allow themselves to be more open-minded? Or do you think it's not something that you can actually unlock in someone through a series of coaching? Yes. Okay, well, here's the good news and bad news for you. Um, I think that, you know, I think we can do lots to become more open-minded. Um, it takes practice. It's, there's no mm. hint, tip, or gimmick which allows people to just do it. So, you know, for me... Um, you know, for, to ask a question like, if I was being open-minded, what decision would I make at this point? And if I was being open-minded, would I have chosen to do that? And um, what questions would I have asked differently? Um, what would I be feeling, thinking, saying, doing? Um, how would I be acting if I was more open-minded? And I think that we need to create some time and space just to sense check. Um, it's interesting that, you know, when... I used to work with golfers, and a golfer would say, I want to be braver on the golf course. I want to be bolder, make different decisions. Um, sometimes get them to play a practice round um, with two balls. And, you know, they, what they would do is hit the ball as they usually would hit it from whichever position it was in. Then I'd get them to put down another ball and say, okay, now if you were really brave and really bold, what shot would you have played? Um, and all they're doing is 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 role playing, uh, pretending to be it. And, um, so if I was, and I think it's a really nice technique, and, uh, and we can do this for anything, and, uh, for collaboration, for bravery, for innovation. We say, if I was, and, um, in my company, in my team, 
um, in my whatever family. And um, if I was the bravest, and um, what would I be saying? What would I be doing? What would I be feeling? What would I be thinking? Where would I sit in that next meeting? Um, who would I call that up to that meeting? Who would I share those the outputs from that meeting with? And I think that we almost need to create time and space to role play. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's a little bit of gamification. But, um, so here's the decision I made. You know, this is what I decided to do and how I decided to do it. But, um, but if, I was, if I was being more open-minded, is there anything I would have done differently? The problem that we've got is that, you know, you've got lots of busy people at the moment. So, you know, meetings will finish at 10 o'clock um, and then their next meeting will start at 10 o'clock. And the role of lots of people in these back-to-back meetings at, uh, who are successful people in successful organizations, the role of those people is to get through them, get through them. How many times have people sit in back-to-back meetings and think, get these two out of the way, I can get on with some work? You know, and we don't really understand the difference between productivity and activity. And for me, what's productive is to create time and space to think about what we do and how we could do it differently. Um, And that's productive. So I think we just need to create some time and space to role play, sense check, gamify, um, to throw around some ideas based upon this one characteristic. Um, and the one that you've identified, you know, is this, you know, open-mindedness, moving away from the prejudice and bias which holds us in place. Um, mm. And I think if we were to do that on a more regular basis, you know, I think that we stand more chance of moving into a space where it happens more naturally. Yeah, I agree. And I think this, this idea of shifting our mindset could also, I mean, I specifically chose a open-mindedness, but I think it could also apply to fixing, let's say, inner critical thoughts that we have or doubts or fears. Uh, This reminds me of a quote that, I I don't know if you know Rich Roll. He's got a very popular podcast and he's like an ultra marathon runner. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And he became, he was an alcoholic in his thirties and became like an ultra marathon runner at the age of 50, uh, just like completely transform his life. And one of the things that really resonated with me that he said was most people, when they're too tired to go to the gym or they're, they don't have the energy, they rely only on their mindset, only on their mind to get there. And oftentimes people have been working on their computers for you know, nine, 10 hours. Yeah. You know, they're not eating well, they haven't slept well, they're laying on their couch. And he said, obviously, you don't feel like going to the gym in that state. But what he says is really helps is change your physical state first. Don't overthink. Don't even think about not wanting to go to the gym. He said, change your physical state, whether it's doing jumping jacks, getting up. And that mind-body connection that we have is so important that when you do feel like uh, not going to the gym, by moving your body, you, you, you have the adrenaline, you have the energy, and all of a sudden your physical state changes. Kind of like if you were to be super tired, you don't want to be making really important decisions because your physical state isn't where your isn't going to be helping your mental state. Um, and that, that kind of really gets me thinking about how we can help address people's fears or doubts that they have using these different techniques. Uh, is there anything that you've, you've found helps when it comes to overcoming doubt? I mean, you've got 
some of the top athletes around the world where for them, it's a zero sum thing, right? They have to get rid of their fears. Uh, or maybe for you in some sense, like maybe fear is good in some sense, like maybe you, you want to instill some fear into them. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, everyone's different. Um, but, um, I think two things on this, I think reframing is really important. So, um, seeing things that, um, and the most, most, most things in terms of fear, most, what people mostly fear is failure. So, um, so let's just use that one as an example. So um, people are, are worried about failing at, um, in the workplace or in a sport or whatever it might be. Um, but reframing is really important. So failure is part payment towards success. You know, and the price of success is always paid in full and in advance. Um, now, sports people know that better than business people. You know, the price of success is always paid in full and in advance. You don't get to number one in the world and start, losing tournaments and um, you don't start making mistakes because you've got to number one in the world. You almost fail your way there. You know, and the most successful sports people I've worked with, you know, have learned to lose at um, before they learn to win. And it's a really important principle. You know, so if we can see failure, you know, as as this part payment towards success and um and we can fail, it doesn't make us a failure. We can make mistakes, it doesn't make us a mistake. Um, if we can start to detach the action from the person, we get our best learning opportunity. So um, by seeing these things as learning moments more so than failures, we stop them from being, you know, an attitude and they become merely outcomes. You know, success and failure are merely outcomes in which they give us an equal opportunity to learn from. So I think that seeing things differently, creating, you know, reframing, seeing things in a different way, really helps people with, you know, understand the concept of failure. I'll give you a very quick example that um, I worked with a golfer um, who was um, 50th in the world. Um, I said to him, where do you want to be in regard to world rankings? And he said, I want to be top five in the world in the next three years' time. So top five in the world is great for me. Um, so um, he used to have really big ups and downs. So if he won a tournament, he'd be really happy. If he played badly... It was awful, at um, totally depressed, really unhappy, um, and these big ups and downs. Now, um, consistency of mind gives you consistency of performance, whether you work in sales or whether you are a golfer. So consistency of mind gives you consistency of performance. Um, so I said to him, okay, well, look, at, um, let's answer some questions. I said that, you know, if you play terribly today, play terribly this week, um, Awful golf, actually, this week. Could you be top five in term in uh, in five years' time, three years' time? He said, yes, I can be. I said, okay, if you play great this week and you win, can you be top five in three years' time? He said, yes, I can be. So it almost proves that the outcome is inconsequential, doesn't it, really, in regard to your long-term goal. Um, answer this. If you learn nothing from now until the next three years, could you be top five in the world? And he said, no. So now the emphasis isn't on how well you do. It's really about how much you learn because, you know, everyone knows that sometimes you can win and learn nothing. Um, and sometimes you lose and you learn a lot. So actually the emphasis now becomes on, on, on learning. We're starting to lose some of that fear and have fear of failure, fear of bad performance, mm -hmm. fear of hitting it sideways, 
instead of stray. So reframing yeah. is really important, seeing things differently. And then the second thing I'd say um, is to um, experiment and explore. We don't need to um, test our fear of heights by by parachuting. You know, we can test our fear of heights by jumping off a couch at, um, and then maybe get on the back of a chair because that's a bit higher. And I think that one of the things that, you know, we don't do very well is that we like this all or nothing approach rather than look at incremental gain or incremental benefit. So, you know, I'm a big believer in a one degree of change. Um, so the one degree of change, if you take two parallel lines, you know, and you move one by one degree, it doesn't seem much at first. But there's a huge difference between where you start and where you end up. Um, everyone's trying to start something or stop something. And, um, you know, I want to do something dramatic. And, um, I want to make a big change. Um, you know, if you smoked one cigarette less a month, and, um, that's improvement. You know, and I think that we almost lose sight of the fact that, you know, when we do something in a small way, it can lead to a, a big difference. And this is exactly the example that you gave, you know, with the star jumps. So, you know, if you say, I want to, I want to get exercising, I want to go to the gym, and you're finding it really hard, you are better off to go and do three press-ups. Go and do three press-ups. Then go and have a cup of tea or coffee. Watch some TV. Because if you commit to something small, which is easy to do, do one press-up. Um, it's easy to do. Um, what you'll find is tomorrow you're going to do another three press-ups. The next day you'll do three. And the next day, do you know what? You will end up doing 10. You just do it. And then because you did 10 that day, you know, next day, oh, might as well do 10 again. And guess what? But, um, before you know it, but, um, you end up going to the gym or making other changes because all great achievements are the result of many small achievements. You know, and I think that we almost lose sight of the fact that we can make some big advances by by making a small start now in some physical way. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think humans in general, we think linearly, especially when it comes to progress, let's say the advancements yes. of technology or AI, but we're just not meant to design to think in that exponential compounding thing that you mentioned, where if you can Compound. grow by yeah, 1%, yeah. it's astronomical. Like what happens if you improve by 1%, I, decided not to do public math because that's embarrassing. <laughs> I'm usually going to get the wrong number. But if you improve that 1% on a day and you look out in a year or five years even, it's crazy the amount. I mean, think about you know exponential compounding. Uh, I think Einstein said that the eighth wonder of the world was uh, compounding. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, investment is a, is a big one. But um, so when you, uh, just to go back, when you talk about reframing, just so that people understand, it seems like what you're really talking about is looking at the bigger picture and not being so in the trenches when you have setbacks or failures, but looking at like from a, almost like a 10 feet viewpoint. Is that, yes. is that the right way to look at yeah. it? Yeah, I'll go with that. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think that, you know, we look at the um, immediate CFR to-do list. We look at um, what we you know need to get done this day. You know, we need mm. to, you know, we look at how we can make, big advancements. Um, but I think perspective is about thinking longer term in regard to, you know, what we need and what we want. You know, I've always thought that, you know, I mean, I've been offered some great advice. I don't know. You're much younger than me, Sean, but you know, I'm yeah, 30. I mean, there you are. Okay. Don't show off. 
But, um, but I, <laughs> no, I'm not sure. Yeah. But I, um, but I, um, I uh, you know, I've been offered great advice when I was 18. You know, um, you should buy a house. You think about how much it will be worth in the future. You know, at 18, mm. I was never going to buy a house. And um, would it have been a great move in the UK to buy a house age 18? But you bet mm. you'd be amazing. It'd be incredible. Um, but, you know, life, you know, life is about timing. And I think it's really hard sometimes for people to think long term. You know, we don't have a perspective on what it will be like, you know, to be 30, 40, 50, 60. You know, we don't we don't get it. It's not, you know, you ask mm. any 10-year-old, you, know, um, you know, how great do you think your life will be at 40? They'll go, you what? <laughs> 40? I can't imagine being that old. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, you know, I think that um, it's hard to have perspective, but it's important to have it um, because it allows us the opportunity to make better decisions in relation to the incremental gain that we need to make. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of going back to this comparison between sports and business, you talked about you could fail multiple times, but still get to the end goal. And it reminds me of this quote that Jeff Bezos often says where he makes this analogy around baseball. And he talks about how in a game of baseball, if you hit a home run, you score what a maximum of four points. I think they say four points, right? Yeah. Or a point. So one to four points and that's it. You may win the game. You may not win the game. When it comes to business, you could fail a thousand times but if you hit a home run, let's say you decide to, um, I don't know, invent a new product or get a patent or, or hire someone new, which can literally 10, 100x or 1,000x your business, there's really no limits when it comes to these home runs in business. So it, I, I feel like what, you're, what you've mentioned there, it's even exponentially is applicable when it comes to business because you could fail a bunch of times, but that one home run isn't limited to four points like baseball. It's could change your whole life. It could change your whole business. And it really goes back to the importance of failing, experimenting, because that one success that you have can really be the difference in, in how, how much you succeed. Sure. You know, I think that um, it's an interesting one now. Because I do, do think that those who experiment the most will win in any sector. Um, it's always better to be disrupted from the inside than from the outside. Mm. You know, so many organizations found that out over the last three years. Um, and the pace of change internally has to match the pace of change externally. And lots of, yeah. lots of companies, I find, and leaders, I find it very hard to get this concept that the important question to be asking is, are we changing as fast as the world around us? And I think it's those who can make the connection between things which aren't aren't connected at the moment who can make those you know the difference that you talk about so rather it being a 10 percent gain you know it could be a 10 times gain you know and it depends what you're playing for but but the ability to passionately iterate to keep looking at change continual improvement you know making things a little bit better um you know may lead to some of the exponential gain as well because what they were doing is creating a culture which is not happy with complacency. So, mm. again, moving into the space where there's small um, incremental gain, where people are taking different actions and um, to which there are always reactions, 
may end up with someone making a bigger snap, you know, at some stage. But at least people aren't just maintaining the status quo. They're looking at protectionism, neutrality. Let's look after what we've got. It's a time of disruption. Let's make sure that we're safe. You know, so anything which allows people to move into a space of progress is a good thing. Yeah, this um, this consistency aspect is really interesting because I think people talk a lot about motivation and showing up every day and needing to feel motivated or passionate even. But I guess I, I could argue that some of the top performing artists, athletes, musicians, entrepreneurs, they show up whether they feel that motivation or not. Do you think motivation and passion is overvalued versus grit and resiliency? <laughs> That's a really big question. That's a huge question. Um, it depends, really. A um, couple of thoughts on that. Um, I think passion is a significant multiplier of human potential. You know, I do think that um, um, people who chase their passion more than their pension you know, tend to be more fulfilled. But, um, you know, and this is my point about why Tiger Woods keeps working. You know, it's because, you know, his his um, uh, his um, purpose is never never achieved. It's attained daily. You know, to play golf to the best of his ability. Um, so, you know, I think that um, passion is incredibly important. Um, energy, enthusiasm. You know, a drive um, to create something at, um, and lose ourselves to something which is bigger than us. It's incredibly important. Having said that, at, um, consistency will often come from the ability to perform even though we don't feel like doing so. Um, so, you know, uh, I see that too. I sometimes think that the difference between successful people and unsuccessful people is that successful people are prepared to do what unsuccessful people are not. And that is often to choose a given attitude uh, or given, given way of being when it would have been easier not to. You know, and I, that's what your question reminded me of, Sean. That's why I'm confused in my answer. I can't, I can't, I don't necessarily, I could not, wouldn't like to commit to an answer on this one because I think it's a really good question. I think you could debate it, um, you know, because, um, you know, there are lots of people who, you're right, you know, they show up um, and they have ability to, um, to give what it takes to get something over the line, you know, when it would have been easy not to. And this point about I made earlier about talent and teachability, um, we probably all knew kids at school who were great at something. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they were great soccer players, great, you know, uh, basketball players. They were, you know, they were destined, but they didn't make it. And the reason why they didn't make it is probably because they had the talent, but not the teachability and the self-investment so, you know, the kids who make it, you know, are practicing on a Friday night when their friends are getting drunk. You know, the kids who make it are the ones who get up on a rainy Saturday morning, you know, when their friends are in bed. You know, and, you know, that teachability and investment, that bit that you described as, you know, showing up when it's hard to, um, is really important. Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, when we we're talking about successful people versus unsuccessful people. And the difference being motivation or passion, which is perhaps one element of that piece. But if you were to take that a level higher, where you're talking about someone that's been at the top of the game for years, if not decades, you're talking, you know, the Warren Buffetts of the world, the Michael Jordans, yeah. the Tiger Woods of the world. 
I wonder if that's that scenario of what is the difference between great or the best versus good, which could also be successful, but they're not the number one over a sustained period of time. And I guess I could make that argument where like that is where the grit and resiliency of those people to get to that level to be successful is like just a foundation. You need that. But the people that are the best over a sustained amount of time might be also, you know, purposeful. They have that underlying purpose that gives them the passion and the motivation to show up over like decades. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard question to answer. No doubt. No doubt about it. it. But I think, you know, I think, I I think the most important word in all of it is purpose. You know, it's this Mm -hmm. reason for being, um, you know, I think that the reason to get out of bed in the morning you know, targets and goals make you successful. They do. You know, I've seen businesses and sports people with targets and goals, and it works. Um, mm. Purpose is something different. You know, purpose. You know, you don't beat someone with purpose. You know, and I and I agree with you. I think that you know to go through. I think it's hard to get to number one. It's even harder to stay there. You know, and um, and I think for you to go through the pain of having to give up what's allowed you to be successful. To allow you to allow you to be successful is really hard work, and what I mean by that is um, you constantly have to reimagine, reinvent, and repurpose if you're going to m- maintain a number one position, because things external and internal change, whether that is for a business or whether that's for a sports person. So, and Tiger Woods, I think, when he was world number one, you know, decided to remodel his sw- swing, start again, take it right, apart. Right. Put it back together, you know, in a different form as world number one. So, yeah. you know, how many businesses will say that you know we're number one? So therefore, we need to take apart everything we we do and reinvent it and repurpose it. Yeah, you know, I think that many struggle with that. You know, to eat their own babies. You know, to cannibalize their own products and systems um, because it's counterintuitive, isn't it? That um, you know that you know you're telling me I need to stop doing what I'm doing and generating all this success because we want success in the future. It's really, it's really, it's really hard. But, um, but, but, you know, I think that, you know, I think you're right. I think that, you know, when you're purposeful, you know, I think that you do what it takes and understand that business growth, success are a game of continual adjustment, you know, and, um, and I think if better never stops, you know, then we would be continually adjusting. You have this quote and it says, um, I've worked with teams before who weakened a strength by trying to strengthen a weakness. I'd love to know how that ties into what we were just discussing, which seems to be around reinventing yourself, which could be also fixing your weaknesses. So, I guess for one, why is it so important that we focus on improving our strengths instead of fixing our weaknesses, which I think is what most people tend to lean on? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think now whether I do believe that, by the way, I do believe that, you know, we need to be careful because we do sometimes, you know, weaken a strength by trying to strengthen a weakness. So we need to be careful. Um, But I'm trying to think of the Tiger Woods example. Um, now, was he trying to fix a weakness, um, you know, or and, um, is one of his strengths his open-mindedness? 
So forget the technical ability and reconstruction of a swing. Um, is one of his strengths his ability to reimagine and repurpose and know what it takes to maintain a number one position. So, um, so that could well be more so to do with culture in a team, might be to do with team dynamic, might be to do with um, some of the characteristics such as open-mindedness, optimism, and, uh, you know, these sort of areas which are hard to measure, hard to count, hard to quantify, but are a key strength in the way in which we go about achieving our goals. So, you know, I do think that um, we need to be careful in the way in which we uh, approach what we believe will make us successful. I think many of us can be much better than what we are simply by playing to our strengths more. Um, I think that's very possible. Um, and I think that, um, I think that the idea of reimagining and repurpose reinvention, doing things differently, um, doesn't need to contradict that. But, um, because again, you know, what we might find is that, you know, in a changing market or changing competition, that, um, in, a change, in a changing competition, that um, we develop another strength that we find that we didn't know we had, you know, or, you know, something that we identify as a key asset moving forwards. So we looked at how can we exploit it? You know, how can we do more with it? So I don't necessarily believe they're contradictory, and, um, but I do think there's a watch out there. So uh, why is focusing and doubling down on our strengths so important when it comes to winning, whether it's business or sports? And can you give an example of how that could be applicable for, for people, maybe in business in this case? Yeah, sure. So I, I, so I think that... Um, Sometimes it's hard to take something from bad to good. So I think it can be quite quite tricky. To take something from good to great, I think, is easier and, um, because the mm. component parts are there. Um, and sometimes when we try to do something that we are no good at and make it better, we get down on ourselves because we can't make it better. So because I can't improve this area of me, and all it does is conspire to make me feel bad about myself. So therefore, I now have got two problems. It's the problem I was trying to fix and my self-esteem or confidence you know, or whatever it might be. I'm becoming more critical of myself because of my inability to improve my weakness. Um, and that's where we need to be careful. Um, and then, because um, I think there's certain things that we can't improve. But, uh, you know, I, I believe that. So um, uh, I may play some guitar for you afterwards and, Find out, Sean, it's one of my areas. So, um, so let's I make think, that happen. <laughs> so, the Smiths. <laughs> so I think. Um, so I think that you know sometimes it, you know it just makes us feel bad that we can't do it. And secondly, um, you know how much gain will we get from taking something which was bad, so therefore not contributing, to contributing a bit more because we now work really, really hard, but lots of time, effort, money, expertise into making it perform a bit better. I don't know. But, um, I think it could be a disproportionate amount of effort for reward. So, you know, I think playing to strengths is probably, you know, a better way of generating greater results over time. Um, and there was a company I worked with, a tech company, um, who um, uh, did very well. They were number one. Um, and then... Success can bring a whole lot of overhead and it became unwieldy and, you know, and lost the 
um, entrepreneurialism, the flair, the mm. the thing that made it what it was. And so, you know, there's a privately owned company, uh, 6,000 people, privately owned, uh, operations worldwide, owned by one person. Um, and I guarantee you now that there's never been an entrepreneur, you know, who has set up a business because they wanted a shared services function, because they wanted HR and group finance. Mm. At, uh, and this became an organization with, you know, layers. Um, and so they went back to their key strength, at, um, which was entrepreneur entrepreneurialism. It was innovation and creativity. So how do we now organize ourselves to have greater fluidity and uh, be more dynamic, deploy resource to opportunity as it reveals itself, um, move away from bureaucracy and hierarchy and become more of a community with a purpose? Um, and they gave better levels of empowerment and control to the people. Um, and they became much more peer focused. So I think that peer anything works peer recognition, peer challenge, peer coaching, I think it's a great way of working. So instead of having the um, layers, at, um, the traditional layers of an organization which stifled creative thought, innovation, um, and the flow of um, uh, uh, energy in an organization, um, they became much more fluid, uh, open, uh, much more sharing, community-focused, peer-focused, um, and transform their results. They went back to their mm -hmm. key strengths, which is you know innovation and creativity and flair. Um, and took two years to do it, but you know it's an organization which still still thrives because of it. Yeah, when you talked about doubling down on strengths, so we have a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening to this, whether they are you know they have aspirations to start their own business or they're just getting started. It makes me think about that saying where it's often better to be loved and hated by two different sectors of people than just kind of liked by the mass. Hmm. And when you start a business, it's so competitive that positioning is one of the most important things. You know, that book, Blue, Blue Ocean Strategy. And um, I think oftentimes like, when you have a product that's in the market, you try, oftentimes people try to be pleasing to everyone and which allows you, which kind of makes you sacrifice what really got you there in the first place and you kind yes. of neglect it. Um, so I think that's a great, like, great tip for entrepreneurs, particularly that are just starting out where they're trying to figure out how to stand out in a marketplace that's so competitive, especially when anyone can start their own businesses today. Uh, so that, that really resonated with me from that business entrepreneur angle that you that you brought up yeah i think do you know do you know i think that people get caught up in what they're trying to sell you know and i think that um i think we need to define ourselves not by what we sell but by what our customers value you know there's a really big difference between what we sell and what a customer buys but there's an even bigger difference between what we sell and what a customer values um and i think that you know i think that once we start to realize I didn't know our contribution, the value that um, that people get from us. At, um, then um, I think that we start to define our organizations and um, organize ourselves in a new and different way based upon you know the value that we're creating for others. Um, and you know, here's the thing: you know, is that you know, customer needs may not change, but the way in which they want to access those needs might change. You know, it's um, it's a fast-paced 
a dynamic environment, you know, we're incredibly competitive you know, in all areas. You know, and this is my point that, you know, I think those who experiment the most will win. You know, we need to constantly test how we, you know, um, ensure our organization is future relevant and future literate, you know, by um, constantly throwing ourselves out to the value point. And the value point is where a customer meets our organization. And then work backwards, you know, to make sure that our systems and processes and ways of working, you know, aren't there to grow our business, you know, but there to satisfy, you know, customers in regard to the value that they're expecting from us. Um, and I think there's, you know, what I call leadership in the new context. You know, you, it, there's definitely a new perspective which is needed from leaders and organizations, you know, to make sure that they're creating and consistently delivering the value which is now expected of them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great way to put it um, and probably a great way to to end that message for for people, Jamil. Um, I want to make sure that people know about you, the work that you've done. Where can people find out more about you and where can we direct people to? Okay, well, my website is jamilkreishi.com um, and you can find me on LinkedIn and you can find me on Twitter and that's the two platforms that I use, mainly on LinkedIn. As I said to you before, Sean, I tend to post on there quite often. That I'm usually yep. on a plane or a train or something and post there. So um, so you'll often find me um, writing something for LinkedIn at, um, or you can find my details at the website. Beautiful. So I think that the only thing that's left is our live guitar session. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm not going to embarrass myself and put you... The world is in a bad enough state without me playing guitar <laughs> for it, Sean. No one will ever forgive me for asking me. Uh, all right. Well, if it's somewhere in the socials, I hope people go find it and check it out. So Jamil, thanks so much for coming on the show. Such a pleasure. And uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks so much, Sean.